Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. been on their cover like 14 or 15 times. I think we have the all-time record in the history of Time magazine. And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Obamacare covers very few people. That I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Hi, I'm Duncan Smith, and this is Pants on Fire, the Fibber's Guide to Lies, Lying and Liars. In today's podcast, The Tangled Web, we look at lies in politics. The assumption that you obviously have to make if you're going to tell a lie is that you'll get away with it. If you don't get away with it, what happens is that there is an erosion of trust. Ian Fraser is a veteran broadcaster, formerly a high-profile political interviewer who has now moved into public relations and media training. You think about the political challenge. The political challenge is to persuade the rest of us that the way they see the world and the things that they promise to do are the right things and that they will benefit it. The moment that we lose trust in them, their power to persuade is undermined. Has anyone, to your knowledge, told a lie in New Zealand politics that has had a major effect on New Zealanders? I can't think of what I would describe as a heroic lie. But, you know, I can think of lies that have had a perceptible impact on our politics. I go back to Don Brash in 2005 during the election campaign saying that he had not met with the exclusive brethren. Don Brash has told an outright lie about his knowledge of pamphlets issued by members of the exclusive brethren. Don Brash joins me now. This is a nightmare. Nine days away from polling and you've been caught out. Look, I, look, I have not been caught out. This is a silly distraction. And the suggestion at the time was that the exclusive brethren were working assiduously and putting a lot of money into the pot in order to throw the election in the direction of national. Now, I think the fact that he was caught out in that piece of economising with the truth had an impact on the 2005 election because those things start to chip away. And I think that probably it was a combination of that and some of the other discomfort that we were being persuaded to develop about the Nats led by Brash that allowed the Helen Clark government back in again. In that case, you feel that rebounded? I do. So I suppose it's an unpredictable game that you play in politics if you meddle with the truth. And of course, in a smaller kind of way, 
you talk about Helen Clark. Wellington anaesthetist Graham Sharp asked the police to investigate Helen Clark over a painting she signed for charity, which she later admitted she did not paint. The painting for the auction that she hadn't painted, but she'd put a signature to. Now, from my perspective, that's not terribly important. And you could easily argue that it's the kind of untruth that drives towards a virtue. But it was made a meal of, and I think it fed into a kind of a narrative that you couldn't trust her. Right. And trust, of course, is vital, immensely important if you're making a claim to government. Where is the line between spin and deceit? Most politicians and most public relations practitioners and most of what are called spin doctors will really go out of their way to avoid saying something that's not true. This is former press secretary and PR consultant Ben Thomas. I think the, the popular conception of spin taken to its sort of extreme would be kind of contorting yourself gymnastics or pretzel-like uh, to avoid saying anything that's untrue, whether that's by generalising, whether that's by omission. But I think in general, you know, a lot of the people who are pejoratively described as spin doctors or politicians engaging in spin are actually trying to tell the truth and they're trying to tell the truth, uh, you know, in the way that's most favourable to them. People who have been in PR for a while will describe it as telling the truth well. I think that we've been done a bit of a disservice by a lot of popular culture, which suggests that the people involved in political communications are somehow more deceitful or duplicitous than any other kind of public relations. The biggest and stupidest lie of recent times was... Pretty much the entire schedule of the workplace safety legislation. Jane Clifton, political columnist for The Listener and member of the Press Gallery since 1985. The worm farms being the most dangerous thing, butterfly breeding and flower growing being more dangerous, I think in some cases, than working on a demolition site or a dairy farm. Every New Zealander could tell you without thinking about it too hard that that is just a big lie for whatever misguided reason you know, our politicians and officials have this mania with harmonising with Australia. And in Australia, they do a whole lot of things that we don't do here, such as crocodile, you know, dealing with crocodiles, which is also on the schedule, if you look. I don't believe that we do butterfly farming either. And as for, for worm farms, you know, how that can be dangerous, the only thing I can think of is that maybe inhaling the compost, you could get Legionella, that's a higher risk. But it doesn't compare with quad bike accidents or, you know, being mowed, mowed over by hurtling stock. But that is, I mean, it is a fairly obvious lie that the government, for all sorts of bizarre, in my opinion, reasons, has stuck to. For some reason, ministers have found it less embarrassing than to admit that all the way along the chain, officials have let this mad botched schedule go ahead um, and and no one's had the common sense to, to halt it in its tracks. So it was enacted. OK. So in politics, these things happen. Governments find themselves stuck between a rock and the proverbial hard place. The call goes out for an expert to manage the situation, a spin doctor, or, if you prefer the more prosaic, public relations advisor. Spin doctors in this context are tasked with shaping the message the way the government wants us to hear it. We're very 
against spin. We all think spin is, is evil and bad and dangerous, but at least you generally recognise it as such. You expect when you interview a politician that there will be a spin, that they will, of course they want to frame things in their own, after their own policies and according to their own lights. But now that we've got Donald Trump as leader of the free world, his people can't get him to sit down for long enough. He hasn't the attention span to actually frame where he's going with things closely. The fake media goes, Donald Trump has changed his stance on China. I haven't changed my stance. With Donald Trump, there is no... There's not even any spin by which we can navigate him. And that's, you know, that's very problematic. So it's actually made me appreciate and value spin in a way I never thought that I would. I asked Simon Keller, Professor of Philosophy at Victoria University and Pants on Fire regular, for his comments about spin. That's, I think, a professional skill that people admire. And it's the skill of being an effective bullshitter. Their ability to distract people, to muddy the waters, to blame others, to say the right thing at the right time, to avoid questioning, like a mark of a good politician. And what they mean is not, I'll mislead people necessarily, or I'll make sure the truth comes out. What they mean instead is, I'll do whatever it takes to make the crisis go away. And maybe that involves distraction, maybe it involves putting out a whole lot of information that muddies the waters, maybe it involves an advertising campaign that makes you look like a good guy, whether you really are or not. And every time we're in the ballot box, we're left to contemplate that question. Governing the country is a hugely complicated business, with a myriad of competing demands to be met. There are a few black and white, neat and tidy answers. It is necessarily a world dominated by shades of grey. I think the most sort of obvious case where politicians are not just expected but really obliged to tell lies are in, you know, financial things like devaluation. You actually have to, you, you can't go around dropping hints that you're going to devalue the currency because that would cause a lot of, you know, capital movement and all sorts of, um, you know, a bit, a bit like stock exchange disclosure type territory where you either have to say absolutely nothing or, if necessary, you do have to, to issue denials. When is it OK for politicians to lie? So there's, there, there are very few times when, when you can say that lying is justified. I, I think the time I expect it and understand it best is when there's a leadership spill or a coup in, in progress. I mean, if, if a leader's not doing very well, then that's no secret. You can't, you can't actually... Um, convincingly lie about that but you can lie about whether you as a caucus member are counting the numbers or intending to do something about it because otherwise it's, it could fall over but I do for the most part think that most politicians are very well intentioned they, I mean the process is necessarily corrupting I mean in any industry has that element of, of people starting out with a set of ideals which they find, you know, unrealistic. And you also have to recognise how very little power each individual politician has. I mean, loyalty is a big enemy to complete truth, actually, because you do have to have collective cabinet responsibility for decisions. You have to be loyal to your caucus members, to your party. And that means that necessarily you have to subjugate a whole lot of opinions. So you can't very often can't tell the truth about what you think. And that that's an eternal tension, and I don't see a way around that. 
I can accept that those lies are practical and pragmatic, a means of effectively operating within the complex machinations of politics and government. But what about promises made during the election campaign? For the candidates, the stakes are raised to maximum as the great carrot of power is dangled alluringly before the nose of those who seek to govern. PR professional Carrick Graham has built a controversial career that saw him feature prominently in Nicky Hager's book Dirty Politics. He gets paid to attack the people opposing his clients. He doesn't often give interviews, and he's the man North and South called a master of the dark art of persuasion. I think before the election, every political party makes all these promises and wild um, comments about this is what they're going to do. And, and even if we go back a few years with the Northland... Um, bridges. ...by-election, yeah, with bridges. And, and literally his promise of 10 bridges. And we, again, where are they? <laughs> Have they been implemented? Are the plans in place? Or is it just a blatant political sort of... Um, promise, which uh, you know he knew deep down would be a you know unachievable um, would not promise. be delivered. So no, and so is that a lie? Is that lying to the the voters in Northland? Well, potentially quite you know quite potentially yes. And what about those promised bridges, Ben Thomas? I think the government deprioritised some of the single-lane bridge expansions that it promised during the Northland by-election. So deprioritising, that's different from reneging on a commitment? Well, <laughs> I, I, I don't actually remember the details, um, but I, I, th I think with all of these projects, they just kind of get shifted up and down the order and only the top few ever get kind of looked at at any given point, but like a hospital waiting list. And so even though the government on the day was at pains to say this is a government announcement, not a campaign promise from our National Party candidate, who of course can't promise 10 bridges for Northland, I think it was pretty implicit um, that that was uh, a campaign bribe. And obviously, if you didn't elect the national candidate, then you didn't get the bribe. OK, so the public didn't fulfil their part of the bargain, so what can they expect? I, I, I think that's right. <laughs> I mean, and when I say right, I mean, I think that's how things played out and I think that's how, probably how people expected things to play out uh, rather than that's right as in that's the correct course of action or the correct way to use the resources of government uh, when one of your candidates is running in a by-election. So that suggests that the government operates uh, on the knowledge that we are cynical about what they say and promise. Well, look, politicians live in the same world that we do. Politicians are voters as well. If anything, I think voters are too cynical. There is this widely held perception that politicians are liars or always trying to mislead or never telling the truth. And I actually don't think that's true. That's certainly not true in my experience of working in politics. And it's not really my experience as a voter either. Look, there's been a lot of research that's attended specifically to the question of whether or not politicians really are the, the lying sods that we think that they are. Professor Mark Wilson from the School of Psychology at Victoria University has the stats on politicians and lies. The first thing I should say is that this research suggests that it's actually relatively unusual to catch a politician in an outright lie, um, or at least it has been up until <laughs> the last couple of years. Um, what is much more common is equivocation. So it's not so much the case that politicians tell falsehoods, they just don't tell the truth. They avoid answering the question entirely. 
And um, some people have speculated that this is a product of the political context. If you're vying for election, there are a variety of different strategies you can take. You can try to appeal to the number of people that you think are out there who are going to like a particular message. And therefore, you're going to have to disagree with the people who don't like that message. Instead, what often happens is politicians try to avoid saying anything that will ultimately hurt them too much with either constituency. So it's, con- it's considered in the literature to be a kind of lose-lose scenario for a politician. If you tell the truth, you're going to alienate someone. If you tell a falsehood, you're going to a- alienate someone. If you don't answer the question, then hopefully you can, you can <laughs> plough that middle path, you know, the delicate tightrope. It's not that they tell lies. It's more that they don't answer the questions. It is, in fact, the most common way that a politician will address a response to a question. We see this as Winston Peters, classic Winston Peters. I love that question. Um, I'm so pleased that you asked it. I'm now going to go on and use it as a springboard to talk about something completely different. I, no, excuse me, I didn't get sacked three times. Did you I get, did. You never made it a full can term. Can I explain to you why well, that's a statement? That's, that statement's a lie. Have you made it can I finish? A, a complete term as a Can I finish? Well, I think you finished three times no, was, early. Look, see, so you made that statement now four times without giving me a chance to answer you. So the problem isn't as simple as, do they lie? It's more like, if I ever get the chance to ask them a question, will they address it? Back to Jane Clifton about Winston Peters' ability to deflect questions. Well, if they don't want to, they're just not going to. And I mean, look, most of them are not in the league of Winston Peters, who, to my certain knowledge, he's never answered a direct question with a direct answer in his life. Is it a um, point of pride? It is. He would regard it as unmanly to um, succumb to the agenda of, you know, spotty journalists. So he, he just makes a point of being as, as obstreperous as possible. And, I mean, we've all heard him on the radio, and I think it's kind of a, it's a good spectator sport. But it's a $3 billion policy. It says that on no, no, your website. No, 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 no. It's a $3 billion policy. Somebody costs us out the way they've costed it. But, it's but, GST... but that's what it says on your website. No, no. Well, that no, is... it does. Well, it might say on the website it should have been corrected. But I can tell you now... Oh, come on. Well, excuse come me. Come on, mate. No, Most no, politicians aren't nearly as bad as that, but they all do it to some degree. You, you won't get them to say things that they don't want to acknowledge. And the risk they take is that people will judge for themselves. I mean, there are some fairly obvious deflections. What I can say is, I mean, there are lots of tricks for just skillfully deflecting questioners from from issues. Eventually, you know that the Official Information Act will catch up with you. So you can only, I think you can only lie or avoid for so long. That may be the case in New Zealand, but it's not necessarily so elsewhere. Simon Keller. And I think there are signs that Trump is the consummate bullshitter, um, as opposed to being a straight-out liar. He, you know, he had that press conference that was widely reported where he said... I guess it was the biggest electoral college win since Ronald Reagan. And then a journalist pointed out, actually, that's not true. Um, Barack Obama had a greater margin than you. And he said, oh, yeah, but I just meant Republicans. And the response was, yeah, well, Bush also had a greater margin than you. And he said, oh, well, someone told me that. And it was clear that he had just said that he won with the greatest electoral college margin since Reagan because it sounded good. It was a way of pumping himself up. It fitted with the narrative that he was trying to get across. When it turned out to be false, he wasn't embarrassed. It didn't. It just seemed irrelevant to him. That just seemed like one more thing to get beyond. I didn't see any sign that he felt he'd been caught out because the, the point was never to state the truth. The point was just to bullshit. The audience was the biggest ever, but this crowd was massive. Look how far back it goes. This crowd was massive. 
sometimes we can know that we are receiving bullshit and we can, in fact, quite like it. But in other circumstances, we might not be quite sure whether we're being bullshitted to. So, for example, with the rise of media being delivered more and more online and advertising starting to become, you know, part of the content rather than something that's explicitly separated from it, I might not be sure what's bullshit and what's not. When it's something that I really care about, so, for example, if it's a political issue that I care about and I suspect that I'm being bullshitted to, it can make you feel alienated. It can make you feel like there's a big distance between you and your sources of information or the people who are trying to communicate with you and that can obviously lead to cynicism and a sense that it's not really worth engaging anymore. Stymied again. Either we can't get them to answer our questions full stop or they talk all round the issue but never allow themselves to get tied down or, in extreme cases, they descend into apparently delusional trumpery and midnight Twitter rants. Maybe this is all to be expected and these responses are the entirely predictable outcome of the adversarial nature of politics. The thing is, while we may not be able to get to them, they can still get their message to us online with social media. Ben Thomas. What I think social media has done, and obviously, you know, the President of the United States is the best example of this, is it allows you to talk directly to your base and to potential voters. And it gives you a chance to put your narrative yourself free from what a politician might think of as the spin that the media puts on their word. So is that a good thing? It's basically the fake news question, I suppose, I'm asking, isn't it? Cause, yeah. Because that was Trump's thing. He would do the research to find out the, the statements that his people wanted to hear, and he would tell them that. Yeah, I mean, I think most politicians seeking office will try and figure out whether they're saying what the public wants to hear or whether they're saying what they intend to do in a way that the public is receptive to. I don't think there's anything particularly sinister about that. I think that's probably how democracy is meant to operate. PR professional Carrick Graham. I think one of the problems nowadays, particularly with social media, is that the comments and the rebel rousing has become so... Just in a very extreme, but also so rife on every single issue that suddenly you have either politicians or or mainstream media looking at issues going, well, hang on, where's where's the truth to all of this? What is actually happening? Because when you have a loud amount of noise online that is being generated by God knows who, and you don't know whether it's true or not, and yet if people start commenting on it or talking on it, it just gains more and more traction. So, where does it leave us, the voters and taxpayers? How are we to navigate a safe passage through these murky waters? Jane Clifton. For the most part, I think that most politicians are very well-intentioned. They, I mean, the process is necessarily corrupting. I mean, in any industry has that element of, of people starting out with a set of ideals which they find, you know, unrealistic. And you also have to recognise how very little power each individual politician has. I mean, loyalty is a big enemy to complete truth, actually, because you do have to have collective cabinet responsibility for decisions. You have to be loyal to your caucus members, to your party. And that means that 
necessarily you have to subjugate a whole lot of opinions. So you can't, very often can't tell the truth about what you think. And that that's an eternal tension, and I don't see a way around that. And if they do get caught out in one of these lies, Ben Thomas? Where you actually see people get caught out is, you know, the sort of lies that follow a mistake or an initial, you know, small untruth, whether accidental or intentional. Sure, so they get done over for the cover-up rather than the the initial misdemeanour. Yeah, so it's the cover-up which is, is often the most harmful. And again, that's because it goes to that kind of trust and that character, which is actually what people are looking for in politicians much more often than they're actually looking for any particular policy platform. So, we vote for them if we perceive that they're trustworthy. And they try and appeal to as many of us as possible, so we'll vote for them. And then we have fake news stories muddying the waters. How are we supposed to deduce the truth of the situation? Jane Clifton. Someone in the States coined the term truthiness. It's a useful new neologism because it conveys the thing that bedevils politics and, and, and always will, is that if something sounds about right to you as a voter, like if someone says these people are coming and taking your jobs and crowding your cities, and that's the problem. And if we got rid of those, then the problem would go... Like, if that feels right to you, then then that is kind of your truth. And even though the more you bore into issues like immigration and housing and infrastructure, the more complex and multifactorial it is, the voter's truth is the most powerful unit yeah. in this game. As someone who's worked in the press gallery for a good number of years and had the opportunity to observe at close hand the day-to-day work that our elected representatives do for us, I asked Jane about her overall impression of politicians. The job actually, particularly when you're talking about electorate MPs, the the workload militates against that because you have to go to your electorate every week and talk to people and hear from your electorate agent about people who are in terrible real-life situations, actual face-grindingly awful situations. And I think parties are also a pretty good accountability mechanism because you know that whatever you do, whatever you fail to do, (laughs) sooner or later, you're going to be poked in the chest by, you know, delegates and and party members at your local branch, at the party conferences, and you're going to have to give account of yourself. There are a fair few governing rods on being a complete nutter rat bag and a a venal, you know, faithless bastard in politics. I don't think there are too many of those. And it's kind of disappointing in a way because (laughs) politicians are are so so often demonised as being the least honest. But actually, you know, I often think they've got more chance of being caught out in their lives than, than, than most of us, really. When asked about how we, the voters, can choose our path amidst the noise and flurry of competing political agendas, editorial imperatives, spin doctors, potions, fake news, fury and social media madness, Ian Fraser quoted the great political journalist I.F. Stone. Stone said at one point, you know, all governments are led by liars and nothing they say should be believed. Now, I think that goes too far. But I think we should be sceptical, and what that means is that when the babble of truthiness and alternative facts meets the media doing their deconstructing, truth-telling best, 
then we need to work harder and think more. We're not persistent enough. So I think there's a lot to be said for being bloody stubborn. Politics has been defined as the art of compromise. Compromise suggests to me that absolute honesty in politics is a most unlikely outcome. Politics, like life, is too messy and complex to give neat and tidy answers. We need politicians to represent us. Political parties need to have their own identity and agenda. If we want to keep them honest, we need a stubborn and dogged media holding them to account. And as individual voters, we need to be engaged, vigilant and inquiring, and truly value the democracy which we take for granted, but in world terms we are so lucky to have. I'm Duncan Smith and this is Pants on Fire, the Fibber's Guide to Lies, Lying and Liars. This podcast was written and produced by me, Duncan Smith, co-produced by Sonia Sly, recorded by Phil Benge for the RNZ Podcast Unit. The executive producer was Tim Watkin. If you like this podcast series, you may like The Lost, a series by Paloma Magoni about unsolved cases where people never came home. You can find it and many other podcasts on the RNZ website on the series and podcast page. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.